0: Welcome back to Behind the Drapes. I'm your host, Kenny. In today's episode, we're gonna be talking to Dr. Caroline Hunter, who's one of my favorite teachers and mentors here at Brown University. She started her medical journey down in South Carolina before coming to New England, where she completed her residency and her fellowship training at MGH. She did her fellowship training in cardiothoracic anesthesia and then came down to Providence, Rhode Island, where she helped create the Brown Residency Program here at Rhode Island Hospital. She's been extremely foundational and fundamental for mentorship, education, and leadership here at a residency program. Not only is she one of my favorite mentors, but she's commonly in the top teachers um, who residents really enjoy working with. When I'm on call or on my cardiothoracic rotation, she allows me freedom and flexibility to practice how I want, but I always know that she's going to swoop in and save the day if I ever feel like I'm struggling. I'm excited to see what we have to talk about today. We'll talk about things like residency applications, what it takes to be a good applicant, why she chose cardiothoracic anesthesia, and where her career is headed. Without further ado, let's see what's going on behind the drapes with Dr. Hunter.
1: This is the last time we're doing this. If it this messes is... up, you're out of luck.
0: <laughs> the interview so good, we had to do it twice. <laughs> it's really only our second time doing it. It's just a matter of coordinating our busy schedules.
1: Hmm. Still, two is good.
0: Two is good. I agree. First time. This is the first time I've done it with somebody at work. So this is interesting. Aha.
1: Well, there you go.
0: Yeah. Some uniqueness behind this one. What are you doing?
1: Uh, thoracic.
0: Nice. Anything interesting with hypertension.
1: thoracic?
0: With some hypertension? Oh, come on.
1: We had to figure that out. With Chao G. Nice. How'd like, you do? Very hypertensive. 240.
0: 240 over what?
1: 160 or something for a while. So,
0: what was the, uh, what was in the differential?
1: Uh, Well, what do you think was on the
0: differential? (laughs) I thought I'm the one asking questions here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we worked through all the malignant things that we had to make sure it wasn't like MH and thyroid storms and neuroleptic malignant syndrome and kind of figured out that we didn't think it was any of those things and then worked on
0: it did you ultimately get the pressure down yeah nice was it a problem for the surgeon at all or it was just a dangerous no, situation they, for the patient
1: They hadn't even really started yet
0: oh okay just put getting in position nice nice i had no doubts chow would be able to handle it
1: oh yeah she was and, all for it.
0: and you have a good residence so you get to do stuff like this while uh you're not in the operating room
1: yeah
0: perfect how are your holidays good yeah you got three three young kids who are probably all very excited about christmas it
1: was a full-on excitement for two days
0: do you guys host
1: yeah my parents came
0: oh nice nice are they still in town or they're gone
1: no they went home i think they'd had enough
0: (laughs) you get a little tired after the second day yeah are you guys uh presents at midnight or do you have them go to sleep and then wake up in the morning christmas day and then open gifts
1: We open some on Christmas Eve from, you know, aunts and uncles and stuff. It just gets to be too much. It's Uh it's too much for one day.
0: Do they get gifts from Santa? Santa still?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. How old is your oldest? Six. Okay. So definitely still in the age group where they get gifts from Santa Claus.
1: Well, forever.
0: Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course.
1: As an adult, I got gifts from Santa.
0: Oh, yeah. What was your favorite gift?
1: My favorite Christmas gift that I ever got?
0: No, today or this year.
1: This year. Um, I got from Santa, I got a um, balloon animal making kit.
0: A balloon animal making kit. <laughs> Is that a hobby of yours?
1: No, but I guess it's going to become
0: one. <laughs> do you need like a tank to fill up the balloons or do you just? It gives
1: you, it, it came with a little pump.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Do you have you and uh, have you done any yet, or are you still waiting to do? Oh, it?
1: I haven't done any yet.
0: <laughs> do you have any in mind that you're gonna do?
1: Well, they have like a direction book in there, so wow.
0: So your that. next, you got your next birthday party figured out now.
1: Well, my my six year old said, "Oh, you can make those at the the clam bake because that's oh, that's great. That's the place where they have had the most interaction with balloon animals because they always hire a really great balloon animal maker if that's the term and that's
0: about to be you
1: my my girls as well as every other child that was there literally hung out with this guy for the entire night I think he probably made each kid five or six balloon animals (laughs) we we got we got our money's worth out of that guy
0: and who would have ever thought you were seeing your future right there in front of you (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, that's too funny. And how long do the uh, seasonal hats go?
1: Until January.
0: Until the until the next season. And then Valentine's until Day comes. Year's
1: day. No, first we have snow in winter.
0: Of course.
1: In January. Of course. Followed by Valentine's Day in February.
0: Nice. And then St. Patrick's Day. And then yeah. spring.
1: And then Easter. Easter. And then spring.
0: <laughs> okay, of course. Yeah. And
1: then um june is june's kind of a hodgepodge it's like the pool and berries and stuff like that
0: uh-huh.
1: and Then uh fourth of july then the beach then another hodgepodge of september some leaves and apples and then halloween thanksgiving uh-huh. and christmas
0: you just got it all covered if I ever need to know what part of the year I'm in, I just got to hunt out <laughs> Dr. Hunter and see what kind of hat she's wearing. There you I'll go. be like, oh, we're, we're still in winter time." Yes. <laughs> oh, well, that's great, Dr. Hunter. Um, so what, now that we can jump into some serious topics now, <laughs> get all the fun okay. stuff out of it. We'll get all the, the fun balloon, stuff all the way.
1: Loon animals and hats.
0: Now those. You're all warmed up now. You're good to go. Uh, so a couple of the questions I've been getting now that a few of these episodes have been coming out um, is how have I picked the people who I choose to interview? And you're kind of in a position where you get to pick people who come for an M M&M, um, and do some of those Wednesday morning Grand Rounds presentations. Um, I'm curious how you pick some of those people and how you invite guests or are they people from your career or just people who you've networked with over time? But I think you're quite, kind of in a similar position to Pick and choose who you want to speak to our department.
1: Yeah. So as the director of Grand Rounds, um, I sort of have to see the the big picture of the year. So in the course of a year of doing these visiting professors, which we have every month except one, there's certain topics that we need to cover for our license, things like opioids and diversity, and substance abuse, um, kind of these overarching topics that um, are things that we all need to be taught about or reminded about on, a, on an annual basis. And then I'm thinking about, well, how should I designate the other times? I have faculty development. We're a teaching institution. We want to help our people be better educators. So there's kind of a few lectures dedicated to that. Research is a mission of the department. So highlight a few um, lectures about either how to do research or some people that have been prolific and how they've had success and and what they have learned through their own careers. Um, And then the other people are kind of clinical um, topics that we need to get some kind of refresher about. Like, for example, coming up this year, I'm going to invite a cardiac anesthesiologist to speak to us about structural heart stuff, because that's a burgeoning area that we all interact with in some manner, whether you're a cardiac anesthesiologist or not. So kind of picking out things that is going to benefit the whole department um, within each subspecialty. And then... um, risk management is another topic that has to be covered in in some form or fashion so last year our our series for risk management was about dental injuries and it'll be something else for 2023
0: do we have a special guest uh for the dental injuries that you know
1: we did have a special guest who gave (laughs) is
0: it is it someone who who you know pretty well it is who is it
1: (laughs) um i invited an oral surgeon. Who knows a lot about dealing with people after dental injuries because they end up to see him to get implants or some other um, kind of prosthetic management of uh, a, a lost tooth, for example. And the person also happens to be my husband.
0: Oh, interesting. You guys can make a little uh, referral policy or like a referral network this way. Like, oops, I knocked your tooth out, but I know a good dentist you could go see.
1: Yeah. That might be considered nepotism.
0: (laughs) Yeah, people might start to catch on to that. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's, uh, I didn't realize how structured or oriented um, all of the topics that you sort of covered throughout the year. Because when I pick people, I've sort of picked one, people who I thought were going to be interesting to listen to, um, two, who I thought would be comfortable just talking in front of a camera. Um, and then three sort of sp- specific reasons why, like for you, the things that I want to cover are you're a female physician who is has leadership roles and also has, how can I say this, like you're a role model for other people um, and not just other female physicians like somebody like me. Um, And I think it's a very fascinating position to find yourself in. Um, I think we're kind of in this time of history where female physicians are taking on more leadership positions and really rising in the ranks. Um, And there's still physicians who come from the age where doctors were only ever males. And so we're in this time where there's a shifting paradigm in medicine. And I think you're a a great example of somebody who's really leading that charge. Um, So I'd love to talk a little bit about who you were growing up in medical school and sort of how you ultimately find found anesthesiology in that career path. Okay.
1: Um, so I guess I could say that I had a bit of a windy road to get where I am today. Um, you know, like every other person who ends up going to medical school, I always did pretty well in school and had a good support system and, and good mentorship. But I, I didn't get into medical school on the first go, so I ended up, um, kind of deciding where I thought that I wanted to be for med school and putting putting my eggs in that basket, if you will. I had some family from South Carolina, um, and connected with the the medical school in Charleston, the Medical University of South Carolina, and I ended up getting a job as a, a research coordinator in my between college and med school year and the anesthesia department which i knew nothing about but it was a job that was available and i needed something to do that year um, and i think really through through that job i learned that hey this is something that is really interesting to me um i get to be the the doctor taking care of, of all aspects of a patient I have a short-term interaction with the patients, which I actually liked. Um, uh, you really have to make it be meaningful, but and impactful in a short time and you take care of them and you're focused on them and then they they go on their way and you move on to the next person. I, I like that rather than seeing people kind of longitudinally in, in an office setting. I, I didn't enjoy that as much. Um, So I kind of got a taste of what an anesthesiologist did through that clinical research job and had some really good mentors that I worked with along the way, Um, and then ended up applying to residency. And I knew that I was probably not the strongest applicant from a numbers standpoint. I don't know if I just am a bad test taker or I didn't put the time in that I ought to have, but I was a very kind of average on the test kind of person. So I said, well, I know that I am, I can be great. And I know that clinically I'm, I'm going to do well. So, and my mentor, one of them that I had done research with trained at Mass General, and I saw him as being different than any other anesthesiologist in the department there. Um, he was curious and Seemed like he could handle anything, and kind of had a little bit more wide view of the fields than other people that I had encounters had encountered. And I never lived in New England; didn't really know anything about it. But said, "Hey, like this, this seems like a good time to try out a different place." So I did some away rotations at institutions in Boston, and like kind of took it as this is my chance. I'm gonna work really hard and show up early and be there and be attentive and do some technical skills and show these people that I can hack it. And I did that for two months and had great experience at both places and ranked them both highly and ended up getting into Mass General as a resident, which was my first choice.
0: Wonderful. Uh, you mentioned something that I think a lot of people can relate to of someone who's not very good at test taking and having standardized tests being such a big portion of the medical journey. How did you overcome that sensation of receiving exam results and not having them be where you wanted them to be or having that or feel like they reflected who you truly were? Like how did you sort of take that internally and then project your better self after receiving? Test results that you didn't think reflected you.
1: I, for me, it was a matter of going to the going to the place that I wanted to ultimately end up and working there um, for a period of time where people could observe the real me, which I knew was just as good as as anybody else. Um, I will say I think that the relevance of tests is going away over time. like Even this year, this is kind of the first year that step one scores do not have to be reported. And I think that's a step in the direction of ultimately them probably going away altogether, um, which is going to make it very interesting for the extremely competitive subspecialties like orthopedic surgery and ophthalmology and ENT to um, figure out how they're going to go about um, choosing the, the folks that they interview. Because I, I have a feeling just like grades has largely gone away in many medical schools, it's pass fail. Now with step one, step two will probably follow. And then you're just going to have people's activities and sort of engagement in the med school and in the community to look at from an application review standpoint. I think it's going away. It's and it it's going to become more looking at what kind of worker is this person going to be um, within the the community of the residency and with probably the the feeling that if everybody that's in medical school is smart enough to learn the information and apply it.
0: Right. And you're you're part of the process for Brown for picking different residents who come into our residency program. And you've sort of watched this evolution over the past few years of one, being pass fail, but two, also the pandemic shifting everything to online interviews and sort of talking the way we're talking right now. Um, how is that process of picking between applicant A, B and C and having very little to work off of? Like, what are you focusing on when you're looking at applicants?
1: To be honest, I think ninety nine percent of the people that we interview, any any number, any of them would be great residents. I mean, like like I said, everyone everyone is smart enough. Um, everyone is very active in in their volunteer activities or research or kind of school based committees or whatever it may be. Like everyone's engaged, everyone's smart. It's really a matter of figuring out who is going to fit in with our culture here. Like who, who can I see myself working with this person? Is this somebody that I would want to be hanging out with doing some bowel obstruction at three o'clock in the morning um on a call night? Like, are are they gonna be the kind of residents that we're looking for here? And that's that's really what the interview is about. And you can mm-hmm. you can pick out these things subtly fairly easily Mm
0: -hmm. do you have a go-to questions to help parse things like that
1: i do i don't think i'm going to share those though because (laughs) whoever i talk to in the future is gonna gonna be overly prepared and part of it is is catching people off guard you know i think a, a lot of a lot of um interview style, one one interview style is asking the behavioral questions, which is those questions like, tell me about a time when. And um, I use one of those questions just because I think that the answers that you give in those questions are, it's very hard to rehearse those. It has to be something that is real and um, kind of a, a, a true experience that you've had. And that th- that question, I think, is one of the, the ones that I value the most in my questioning because it, it really tells me about how somebody thinks about problems and works through a problem, which is a big part of being a resident and being a physician, it's being mm-hmm. able to do that effectively.
0: Mm-hmm. And then once you have residents who now start their CA1 year, they have three years at Brown, how do you see yourself as sort of an instrument to helping them get to where they need to be in three years? Like, what role do you see yourself playing in the development of a resident?
1: Well, as an associate program director, there's certainly like certain pieces of the residency that falls more under my purview than others. For example, um, I'm the director of one of the kind of bigger rotations that residents do the cardiothoracic rotation so interface with residents over their longitudinal time on cardiothoracic which people come at least one time every year um I'm a, I'm in the simulation kind of department as far as running that section of our didactics so that's the time that um I, if I'm involved in the simulation um, that day, that I get to really take delve into conflict, uh, not conflict, crisis, resource management, and how people work in a team and and work on those skills, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. And then, you know, as a mentor, I I think that um, as a program leadership, you should. You should be a mentor to people and be a resource for people. So I don't know. I I guess I kind of see myself a little bit of, as the mom of the residents. Like, I love you, but sometimes I'm going to give you some tough love and you need to buck up and get with the program. But there's always love behind it.
0: Of course. I'm trying to think of a time when I got tough love from you, but it, it, I really can't think of one that's coming to mind right now. But I'm sure there have been times.
1: Probably regarding some uh, block thing.
0: <laughs> probably. I probably could always get better. I I shoot for like a B plus for all the things that I do. So there's always a little room for growth, you know, you opportunity go. for feedback. <laughs> Why is cardiothoracic one of our department's favorite rotation for residents?
1: Is it? I didn't know that that was true. I think so. Um, Well, I think it's it's. Largely due to the faculty that we have. I think probably the best, many of the best teachers in the department are, are the cardiothoracic teachers. And part of that is because we have time to teach. I will admit that, you know, there's long periods of time in those cases that um, when we're on bypass, where you might have half an hour or 45 minutes to go through some topic that you you don't get that amount of time in a lot of other rotations. Particularly, uh, I'll kind of point to my my um, counterpart rotation and probably rival rotation of PD. That is a very uh, fast moving, quick cases. It's hard to to get teaching time. But that aside, I think our our faculty like really loves cardiac anesthesia and. That comes through in the teaching as well. And also are very skilled at the the technical skills that goes into doing the cardiac case. And that's something that's easy to teach and residents probably it resonates with residents the most, learning how to do a TEE. When you finish a couple months with us, people can kind of get through a basic TEE exam. And that's a really proud achievement to be able to do that. So Um, I guess I think for all those reasons, maybe that's why residents like our rotation.
0: Why do you think cardiothoracic is also the most terrifying subspecialty that we do?
1: Well, I think people come into it thinking it's going to be like every other rotation where you're the primary caregiver in the room with your attending as a consultant. And then they quickly find that it's not like that at all because we're one-to-one with our resonance in um, the cardiac cases, anyway, not maybe not thoracic and vascular, but we're 100 with with you for cardiac. And really, your job is to learn. Like you're not, with with all due respect, you're not needed to do the the clinical work. We can do the case by ourselves, and, and did for many years before we had a residency. Your job there is to be there to learn. And I think once people appreciate that then the fear goes away. Um, We're always going to be there, you know, always pre and post bypass. And um, that's when the difficult times of the case are.
0: What would you tell somebody who's about to start their CT rotation and they have their first open heart case tomorrow morning? What would you tell them to do the evening leading up to that?
1: Well, I think... The nuances of cardiac anesthesia is understanding the patient's pathology. So if you know that you're going to be doing an aortic valve replacement and the patient has aortic stenosis, you should have some knowledge about what are the goals of kind of inducing anesthesia in a patient with aortic stenosis. And okay, now we're going to take this crusty old valve out and put a new valve in and Um, that works perfectly well. And how is the heart going to deal with these changes in in the physiology of blood blood flow through the heart? And what should I expect kind of post bypass and, you know, basic cardiac physiology and pathology review? Do you need to know um, what cannula is going where? And when we go on the bypass machine, what's going to happen? And, you know, the doses of every medication that you're going to give and how to titrate your drips. No, that's stuff that you're going to learn um, as you go. But understanding the physiology that the patient has that's coming to you that day and how you're going to deal with it pre, during, and post bypass is is helpful. Mm
0: -hmm. This is an intermission. You're about halfway through the episode. Now would be a good time to take a break, put the podcast down, and come back to it at a later time. If you're really into the episode and you want to keep pushing forward, then just push ahead 15 seconds and keep on going. If you do take a break, you're going to want to be sure to come back because most of the guests seem to save their best for last. You're not going to want to miss what's coming up next. And just to touch on kind of your mentorship um, and sort of your leadership in the residency program, let's say I'm somebody who has done a few TAVR cases with you, but I just haven't like put together the logistics of the case and maybe my hands-on skills aren't as proficient as they should be. How do you work with residents who just takes a little bit longer for things to click or whose hands-on skills don't come as quickly as maybe their co-residents?
1: Yeah. I don't think that we ever expect people to have any technical skills when they come to us. And you're right. People do progress at different rates and that's perfectly fine. I think with somebody that um, maybe didn't play so many video games growing up and doesn't have that like fine, the same fine motor skills as their colleague. That's okay. We're going to say to this today, we're going to work on um following the trajectory of the tip of your needle as it enters the vessel. I'm not going to worry about anything else and kind of perfect that skill. And then maybe next time, okay, now we're going to work on doing the appropriate size skin nick and okay, you got that. Now the next time we're going to work on actually threading this rather large catheter through the tissue um, in a kind of um, neat way and take one thing at a time.
0: And then how do you know when you're ready to sit on the bar or the chair by the computers and let me do a central line all by myself?
1: Once I've watched you do every step of the way in a careful cautious and also um efficient manner then you're ready you have to have all those things can't you can't just be technically capable you have to also be efficient at it because that's part of learning too It's how to how to kind of speed up certain parts and then slow down for other parts of the procedure where you need to be more more careful
0: cool Another thing that comes up in cardiothoracic anesthesia or really sort of any anesthesia room um, is conflict resolution. Um, We sort of, there's always this dueling thought of there's a surgeon and anesthesiologist and sometimes they may not be on the same page, especially about what's happening with patient care at a certain part of a surgery. Um, And there's been really professional moments, I feel like, in your career where you're able to step up to somebody and say, hey, I don't think what we're doing is safe for this patient, or at least vocalize your concerns for a patient. And you're somebody who actually teaches our residency program how to handle conflict resolution. So what are your some of your techniques that you use when you're in situations like that?
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's one of the hardest things that we do, to be honest. Um, so the first thing is you you have to take it back to the patient we're ultimately all here to take care of the patient and we all want the patient to do well, whether you're a nurse, a surgeon, anesthesiologist, the housekeeping staff, we're all here for patient care and patients to succeed. So usually when you approach a problem with another care provider, and you say, and you bring it back to, I'm worried about this patient, or um, I'm concerned that that if we do this, the patient isn't going to do well. That makes people pause and think, it's like, oh, like, yeah, I want the patient to do well too. Um, let's think about this. Another technique is to try to get in what's called the frame of the other person. So let's say I'm arguing with a with a surgeon about um giving blood for example I'm I'm thinking of a time that I was a resident that I had such a a discussion and let's say the surgeon doesn't want the patient to get blood they and for the example that I'm thinking of I as the anesthesia provider know that this surgeon does a lot of basic science research about kind of the immune response to administration of blood cells and all the kind of bad things that can happen with that so that's that's the frame that this person's coming from that they this is their their specialty and they know a lot of kind of basic science things about this but maybe they're they're not so situationally aware with what's happening right now in my patient that's on, 400 mic per minute of phenylephrine. And when I draw a sample of blood to check the hemoglobin, it is almost translucent because there's so much crystalloid in in the blood and very few blood cells. Hmm. Um, So I think in those cases, you have to come from the other person's perspective, like, hey, doctor, so-and-so, I know that um, there's a lot of issues from an immune standpoint with administration of blood, but here's the facts I'm on this much drip the the sample is very dilute the hemoglobin is very low I'm concerned about this patient not having um, perfusion of their organs and having a lot of problems later with renal failure or strokes or whatever it may be mm-hmm. that that often works as well mm-hmm. but you have to you have to create a rapport with people I mean in the right. cardiac or we're very lucky we work with the same four surgeons day in and day out. And I know everything about how each of them does things and what's important to them and um, what their goals are like personally, as well as professionally. Whereas another type of um, surgery, I might be working at the, the FANE OR, which I do very infrequently and work with a surgeon that I've never worked with before, but you can still kind of create a rapport with the person um, by taking those two approaches, I think. Bring it back to the patient and try to understand where they're coming from and address whatever that is.
0: Nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The last question I want to leave you with is something that I've sort of slowly been discovering for myself this year or sort of been trying to parse out and how I would answer this question. Um, But when you become so... Um, I'm speaking for you now, when you become so a- accomplished in your career, and you feel like you've, you've done so much in your career, and you're very comfortable doing your job. Um, you know, you've covered all of the typical academic bases of like research, mentorship, um, your own proficiency. What, what get one, what gets you out of the bed at a bed to like come to work? And two, like, what are you striving for when you're at work? Like what, makes what do you want to improve on or what makes you want to be better at your job?
1: Yeah, I mean I just realized I'm starting every answer with yeah. But um <laughs> I think
0: of course I... you're you're saying yeah of course I'm proficient. <laughs> <laughs> you're well, just agreeing.
1: <laughs> I think that number one what what gets me out of the bed in the morning is that I truly Enjoy coming to work here. I'm not just trying to toot the horn of of our department, but I really think that we have something special here. I feel like I am actually just having a good time all day, hanging out with people that I consider to be my friends, and that is, you know, I every once in a while, oh yeah, I'm doing a great case today, or this is this is something really really unique that we ne- we don't get to do like that that's not most of the time um, most of the time it's I, I'm glad that I'm gonna see so- and so today. Um, and I think even though we might be doing the same case over and over again, there's something to learn from every case and that's something that I I still think about as as an attending who's done, most cases, hundreds or thousands of times in my life at at this point. Um, But you don't know what, what patient A is going to bring to case B and have what kind of result or with surgeon X, like there's a lot of very, every, every case is different because every patient case combination, surgeon combination is different. So I think, for me, for clinical satisfaction, remembering that there's something to learn from every single case is is valuable. Um, where do I want to go from here? I don't know. I I think um, I I want to keep kind of being a leader. I don't know exactly what what that will look like going forward, but I'd like to kind of keep keep progressing on the path that I'm on and become an associate professor and maybe someday a professor, which means I need to do more research than I'm doing. I want to be out in the world giving talks. Um, I want to be a better teacher every day. You know, I, I think I'm a pretty good teacher most of the time, but not a great,
0: pretty great teacher
1: but there you know there's stressful days like covering uh, assignments could be very challenging to teach and remembering i have to kind of make myself remember that i need to make this be a great experience for this resident even though it's a, a hard experience for me sometimes to get get through the day depending on what the assignment may be so just i think more of more more of everything
0: That's great. Do you feel like, sorry, now I'm like asking tangent questions, but do you feel like the stage of your life right now, having three young kids makes that difficult? And do you think as to grow up, it'll get easier for you? Or do you think it doesn't even really affect the trajectory of your career?
1: If anything, it might get harder because having been a child that grew up myself, I know that particularly, um, being a teenager, I have three girls. Being a girl teenager is very challenging, and that's probably the time that you need your your mom around the most. So, right now, like I have little kids, they're fine. They're loving life and going to school and doing their activities, and they don't have the the angst of um, teenage life and all the kind of emotional issues of of being a teenager yet that that's that's when you really need in my experience when you really want your mom to be around so we'll see what happens down the road um and i might want to work less than i am now and and be at home more but right now um i know that they're being well taken care of and they're doing fine and i love my job so i wouldn't want to change anything
0: I think you said you love your job about like five five or six six times in this interview which is a testament to this department like you said yeah i think so well thanks for your time dr hunter my pleasure but we finally made it happen
1: (laughs) despite technical issues sicknesses
0: holidays
1: um, scheduling problems made it happen yeah
0: thank you so much Thank and you. thanks thanks for being our mom. Thanks for sacrificing part of your life to be all the residents mom.
1: I, it's a pleasure and an honor.
0: Because I think you do make a big difference in our lives. And I think you give a lot of good advice. And you've certainly helped me figure out my career path along the way. Good. And I feel like every time we work together, I do learn something that day. There's something to take away from that day. So you make the boring days even exciting.
1: Good. <laughs> all right
0: all right dr hunter i'll let you get back to work now
1: all right i have to go i think there's a problem with the the pump or the drip or something she's, <laughs> she opened up the the roller of the phenylephrine drip that was on the pump and then the thing skyrocketed again so it must be so some kind of mechanical technical issue
0: ah back to hypertension well tell chow i said thank you for letting me borrow you for a little while
1: yeah, i'm sure
0: yeah. i'm sure she's sweating a little bit in there <laughs>
1: she's very conscientious so that's a good thing that is a good thing sweating is a good thing
0: especially when you're first starting out definitely you got to be if you're not nervous you're doing something wrong
1: yes agreed
0: all right dr hunter i appreciate your time seriously my pleasure all right i'll talk to you later okay bye bye thanks for listening to this episode of behind the drapes if you like what you hear be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes of the show as they drop right to your homepage. If you really, really liked what you hear, be sure to rate and review so that other people can find the show easily and also tell a friend so they could check it out too. Special thanks to all the guests who come on the show and help make my job a lot easier and hopefully make an entertaining time for you guys to listen to. We'll see you next time.